0: Having been a pastor for as long as I have, I've had the joy and privilege of officiating a number of weddings. And like you, I've attended a bunch. But one of the parts of the wedding ceremony that I love is when the groom first lays eyes on his bride. You know what I'm talking about? The wedding party has all walked in, and everyone has taken their place. That's when the music typically changes. The doors reopen and there's the bride standing there with her on her father's arm and everyone ooze and aahs at the beautiful bride and then they all turn to look at who the groom why because they want to see the look on his face as he gazes upon his bride and all her splendor and all her glory and most guys are beaming with pride, right? They got a smile from ear to ear. And some guys get emotional. Some guys get very emotional, like yours truly. I was an emotional wreck at my wedding. When I saw Jean walking down the aisle, I was like, are you kidding me? That girl is coming down to marry me. But in all the weddings that I've been a part of, I've yet to see a groom not exhibit the joy and the love, the delight, the absolute delight he feels as he looks at his bride. The Bible says that is just a glimpse, a tiny glimpse, a faint echo of how Jesus feels about his bride, the church. As many of you know, the church and scripture is referred to as the bride of Christ. And we see this in passages like Ephesians 5 where Paul talks about marriage and how we as husbands are to love our wives as Christ loved his bride. And how did Christ love the church? He loved her to death. Literally. Jesus loved her to the point of laying down his life for her and Paul tells husbands, love your wives like that. Now, the most mind-blowing part in all this is what he says in verses 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is Paul saying here? What he is saying is this. Marriage isn't ultimately about us. It's ultimately about God. In other words, God didn't get his inspiration for loving the church from marriage. No, the very reason he created marriage in the first place was to illustrate his love for the church. Think about that. From the very beginning, when God instituted marriage in the garden between the first man and woman, He didn't do it to cure the guy of his loneliness because marriage doesn't do that, in case you didn't know. He did it for the intent purpose of displaying to the world the love that Christ has for his bride, the love relationship that he has entered into with us, which is summed up in the word covenant. Jesus has made a covenant with us through his blood, And it's a covenant of love, a covenant of faithfulness that nothing in all creation will be able to break and pass. We preached powerfully on that last week. But marriage is to be a picture of that, and that is why we call it the covenant of marriage, right? Now, here's what's important for us to get. Listen carefully. The language of covenant is all over the Bible. From Genesis all the way to Revelation in fact the very basis for how God relates to his people is through covenants and we see this from the very beginning in his covenants with Noah Abraham Moses David and the nation of Israel the very Old Testament literally means old covenant did you know that and then we come to the New Testament or the new covenant that God has entered into with us through Christ, that because Jesus lived a perfect life, we should have lived and died the horrendous death we should have died. We are forgiven of all of our sin, and we have been adopted into the family of God, and that is an everlasting covenant that seals us today and will seal us for all eternity. Praise be to God. Now... The picture of covenant isn't limited to God and man. Don't miss this, because this is huge. When the Bible speaks of covenants, it's not just vertical. It's also horizontal. In other words, the picture of covenant is also between men, specifically between God's people. And this, too, we see all throughout the Bible. For instance friendship in the Bible did you know that the friendship or friendship in the Bible is defined in terms of covenant and we see an example of this with David and Jonathan who loved each other and made a covenant with each other we see the language of covenant in books like Nehemiah where God's people entered into covenant with each other how they're gonna live together in life and then we come to the New Testament And we see passage after passage that talks about the nature of our relationship in the church. Passages like Ephesians 2, where Paul says the cross of Christ not only reconciled us to God, vertical, it reconciled us to one another, horizontal. He says Jesus died, get this, to make us one. Just listen to the language here, okay? Listen to the language. One new man. One body, fellow citizens, members of the household of God, joined together, built together. This is covenant language. And what Paul is telling us is that as recipients of a new covenant, we are members of a new community. A community made up of people who have entered into covenant with each other. John Piper puts it like this. The covenant that makes us belong to God makes us belong to each other. Therefore, our commitment to each other in the local church is a covenant commitment. Our covenant relationship to God creates and shapes our covenant with each other. And this is the picture we see in the New Testament with the early church, is it? not? We are told in the book of Acts that one of the things that the first Christians devoted themselves to was fellowship. And by fellowship, it's not saying they just hung out. No, what it's describing is the way the people of God, followers of Christ, related to one another. That because they were united to Christ... They were now united to one another. There there was now a bond that nothing in the world can break. And this is why we are told in chapter 4, there were no needy persons among them. Why? Because no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Can you imagine? Not one person in that entire community who was in need. Because every believer, every Christian lived with an open hand. What's mine is yours. God. I've got Christ. And because I've got him, I've got everything I need. Take it if you need it. That's the picture of covenant we see being lived out in the early church. Now fast forward through some of church history and gradually over time... That picture began to fade to where it eventually got lost. There came a point where the church was no longer something you entered into a covenant with, but something you were born into. You were a member of the church, a part of the church by birth. Regardless of whether or not you actually put your trust in Christ and made a commitment to be a part of that local body of believers. Then things started changing again with the Reformation. That's when people started saying, no, the church isn't something you're born into. You're a part of the church when you put your trust in Christ for salvation. And they broke away from the official established church and they started forming their own congregations where they would make a covenant with each other. Covenants that said, this is who we are. And this is what we believe, and we're committed to each other. We're going to uphold one another. We're going to strengthen one another. We're going to encourage one another. We're going to stand with one another, and stand they did. Because to break off from the established church came with massive consequences. The believers during that time faced all kinds of persecution, with many of them losing their very lives. But at the risk of losing it all, these believers came together and stood together and encouraged each other through it all, and this is the picture of the church that is until the 19th century into the 20th century. That's when that picture got lost again for a variety of reasons like an increase in the secularization of society as well as the church, and more recently, with the whole church growth seeker movement, which continues to this day. The name of the game in the church today is to make it as easy as possible for people to follow Christ and be part of a church. They say, the experts tell us, if you want your church to grow, if you want people coming into your church, don't ask for commitment. That's rule number one. For reals, they tell us that. If you want your church to grow, don't ask people for commitments. Why? Because people today are commitment folks. They resist committing to anything. So unless, you're, unless you want your numbers to go down, don't ask the people for any major commitments. And all of that has created a culture, a church culture where people come expecting certain things. Like when I come to church, I need the parking to be accessible to me. I like to, I want to drop off my kids at a state-of-the-art children's ministry where they're going to be fed organic snacks. (laughs) I want the music to appeal to my senses, I want the music to make me feel good, to, to to make me feel closer to God. I want the preaching of God's word to be positive and uplifting, not too preachy, not too heavy. Oh, and I want to make sure that my family and I are out of here in good in good time, in a timely fashion. Oh. And I wouldn't mind if there was a peppermint mocha waiting for me in the lobby when I got here. <laughs> if you think I'm exaggerating, I'm not. Guys, I know of a church. I know of a church that replaced all their chairs with. With love seats. And they had coffee stations at various locations in the sanctuary so that people can enjoy a nice cup of Joe as they listened, as they watched the service from the comfort of their couch. This is Christianity 101 in our culture. We seek to make it as easy as possible for people to follow Christ and be part of a church. Oh, what a far cry that is from what we see in this book. These are phrases you will never hear on the lips of first century Christians. I hope there's a latte waiting for me. Is our children's ministry top-notch? Do they have good parking? Do I have to walk far? Is the music good? You will never hear these words on the mouths of first century Christians or most of our brothers and sisters around the world for that matter. In our attempts to grow the church, we have catered to people's comforts and conveniences. And that's not even the worst part. The worst part is that we have undercut the very foundation of biblical community. What it means for the church of Christ to be the church as Christ envisioned it. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning. The context of what Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians 12 is spiritual gifts. And he's writing, this, writing about this because rather than using their gifts to build each other up and exalt Christ, they were using it to exalt themselves and show everyone how awesome they were, which did nothing but bring about this unity and this discord. And so starting in verse 12, Paul tells them why such boasting, one, why such one-upmanship has no place in the church. Look at what he says in verse 12. For just as a body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Paul starts out by comparing the church to a what? A human body. And he says, just as a body is made up of all these different parts that all come together to form one cohesive unit, so is the church. And in the next verse, he tells us that all of this is made possible by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. That is, we are all indwelt by the same spirit. But notice the repetition here. One spirit, one body, one spirit, all to say you're one. You are one in Christ, and yet your oneness is the result of all these different parts coming together. In fact, in 16 short verses, Paul uses the word member or part 36 times, all to say one thing, and it is that although you were saved individually, listen, although you were saved individually, you were born into community. Don't miss this every single one of us that is in Christ every single true believer is seen to be part of a greater body now it's at this point that I often hear people say yeah I'm part of the body of Christ and by that they mean the universal body of Christ I'm part of the global church and that's what's important so I don't have to be part of a local church Oh, this is something that I've heard a lot over the years, especially nowadays with all that we have at our disposal. I mean, think about it. I can listen to any sermon I want from any of my favorite preachers anytime I want. There are podcasts galore. So I can get my teaching. I can get whatever I need from all these places. I don't have to be part of a local church. Being part of the universal church is good enough for me. And this is what a lot of Christians today are saying. But is that what the Bible teaches? No, it's not. That actually goes totally against what the scriptures teach. What we see in God's word is an expectation for followers of Christ to be members or parts of a local church. And let me prove it to you. The word church in the original Greek is ekklesia. You know what that word means? Gathering. So church, the word church literally means a gathering, a coming together. And there are places in the New Testament where when it talks about the church, it's talking about the universal church, right? Christians everywhere at all times. But passages like that are in the small minority. The vast majority of the, of the time, when you see the word church in the New Testament, it's referring to local bodies of believers. A specific group of Christians in a particular location. The church that gathers in this city or this region, this community or this house. I mean, the book that we're studying right now was written to the church of God that is in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 1.12. So this letter was written to the to the, the the believers that gathered in the city of Corinth and this is just one example. But the dominant use of the word church in the New Testament is a picture of local bodies of believers to which individual followers of Christ belong. Here's another reason the Bible expects followers of Christ to identify with and belong to a local church and that's church leadership. Guys, listen to Hebrews 13 17. This is a heavy text. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are watching, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grumbling, for that would be of no advantage to you. Talk about a sobering passage. It says, I as a pastor, as a leader in the church, will one day stand before God and give an account for the people that I've led. Which leads me to ask, who are the people I will give an account for? Will I give an account for every believer in the global church across the world? No, I will give an account along with every other pastor and elder here at Living Way Community Church. We will give an account for everyone who is a member or a part of this body. Now think about the first part of the verse. God's word commands you as a follower of Christ to obey and submit to your leaders. Does that mean you're supposed to obey and submit to every leader that exists in the global church of Christ? Of course not. This is meant to be applied to the specific church that you are a part of. Let me give you one more reason the Bible expects believers to be part or members of a local church, and that's church discipline. In Matthew 18, Jesus outlines a process by which we address unrepentant sin in the church. First, he says, go to that person alone and address him one-on-one. If he blows you off, if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two people with you. And if he blows all of you guys off, get away from me, then he says, tell it to the church. Does that mean we send an email blast to all the churches in existence and say hey look at what this person's doing? No, that means tell it to the church that that person belongs to. And then Jesus says if the if they if they refuse to listen to the church, we are to what? We are to then remove that person from the church. You are no longer welcome in this community. Now you put all that together. You bring all that together and you realize that what the Bible teaches flies straight in the face of American individualism. And to be honest, it flies directly in the face of much of our contemporary church culture. And it's not asking, where do you get your sermons? It's not even asking, where do you attend worship? No, it's asking... Where have you committed yourself? Which local body have you entered into covenant with? Where you are committed to gathering every week to worship the Lord and study his word. Where you care for one another. Where you hold each other accountable. Encourage one another. And serve each other through your gifts. Where is that for you? That's what the scriptures are asking and that's what Paul says in verse 14. Look at it. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less of a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole church were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would, the, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be as it is? There are many parts, yet one body. Paul here talks about the value and the importance of every member of the body. And we know this to be true, right? I mean, just think about the human body. Every part matters. Every part is essential. Your body has no extraneous parts, no useless parts, no unwanted parts. Every part of the body has been constructed to fulfill a specific purpose. That's why Paul says it makes no sense for the foot to feel insignificant because it's not a hand. Because a hand can't do what it's supposed to do if the foot doesn't take it where it needs to go. In the sense, in the same way, the ear shouldn't feel it's any lesser part of the body because it's not an eye. Because Paul says, if the whole body were an eye, can you imagine? A five-foot-six eyeball. If, if the whole body were an eye, how, how would you listen to beautiful music or listen to the preaching of God's word? You can't. The point is clear, is it not? The church is a body, and it needs you. And guess what? You need it. You need the church more than you realize. Here's something critically important for you to get one of God's primary agendas in your life and mine is to go to war against our self sufficiency. God is actively warring against a self-sufficient, independent spirit. Why? Because that's the enemy of the gospel. That's why. Think about how you enter the kingdom of God when you recognize your complete inadequacy, insufficiency, when you were utterly dependent on the grace of God. That's why a self-sufficient, independent spirit is in direct opposition to what life in the kingdom of God is like and what life in the body of Christ is supposed to be. That's why when God saves you, He saved you to be part of a body. And this is why the Christian life is ultimately a life of interdependence, a life of interdependency, that as we walk in dependence on the Spirit of God, moment by moment, day by day, we are to walk interdependently with one another as we journey through life. If you're into bottom lines, here's the bottom line. We need each other. Oh, church, we need each other. I need you, and you need me. This is why no one person has been given all the gifts. And God could have done that, right? God could have given one person, pass away all the gifts, and we just looked at him. <laughs> but in his mercy, he didn't do that. In his wisdom, he spread them out throughout the church. He said, you get this one, you get that one. He spread them out so that we would rely on each other to experience all that God has in store for us. Again, I'm going to say it again. We need each other. And if there's any generation, listen to me, if there's any generation that needs to hear this, it's this one. Because this generation more than any other has turned faith into a solo pursuit. It's me and God. It's me and God. And that's why experts now describe America as a nation of believers but not belongers. In other words, while most people today claim to believe in God, they don't see the need to belong to a church, and the numbers prove it. According to Barnum, while the adult population increased by 15% in the last decade, the number of people who did not belong to a church or only attend on major holidays increased by a whopping 92%. And that trend is only growing. Let me say this as clear as I can. When you cut yourself off from the church, you are cutting yourself off from your life source. What if I cut off a finger? Let's see my pinky. I just cut off my pinky. What's going to happen to my pinky? It's going to shrivel up and die. Why? Because it's been separated from its life source. The same is true for you and me. If we are cut off from the church, we will spiritually shrivel up and die. Your survival, hear me, your very survival hinges on on your relationship with other members of the body. This is why you cannot live your life in God in isolation. You can't. And this is why, listen, this is why your life in the church is not some optional add-on to your individual walk with God. Something you do only when you can spare the time. No, we live out the very purposes for which we were saved only if we live them out in community. Oh, man, this, it's the height of arrogance. It's the height of Christian arrogance to, to think that I can do this on my own that I don't really need anyone else. And that totally goes against what the scriptures teach, that we were made to need each other, all the more so when you consider that we are prone to stumble. All of us, were are prone to wander, we're prone to stumble, we're prone to drift. And that's why we need the help and the encouragement, the accountability of fellow believers to stay the course, to stay faithful to Christ. And this is why the New Testament has no classification for Christians who are not an integral part of a church. Paul continues the theme of needing each other in verse 21. Look at it. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Oh, what a beautiful picture of what the church is supposed to be. Paul says, no part, no one part of the body is more important than another. If anything, the parts we deem less important are given greater honor. In other words, the people in our church we think are not as important because they don't have as prominent of a role are worthy of greater honor. And I read this, certain individuals came to mind for me: people like Mike Troy, who heads our A.V. ministry, and Andrew Kim. These guys are always working behind the scenes. They're always serving in the background. The spotlight is never on them. They put the spotlight on everyone else, people like me. And yet they provide such an invaluable service, do they not? They make sure that you and others online see and hear everything that's being disseminated up here, the worship of God and the proclamation of his word. I thought of people like them and just how grateful I am, just how grateful we as a church should be for people like them. Can we put our hands together, church, for our AV team and all that these guys do every week? I thought of people like Eric Wong who has our lunch ministry, man. Talk about serving behind the scenes. Talk about getting no recognition. Eric and his team every week, every week, labor over preparing a meal for us to enjoy after service, to fellowship over. And these guys are tiredly serving the church behind the scenes in ways that we don't even know. I'll give you an example. Last week, we were supposed to have that picnic right across the the street at Victory Park, which Hurricane Hillary, the tropical storm, forced us to cancel. And you know what, when we canceled it? Friday. That's when we made the final, we, we had to cancel. That day, Tom Kim, he volunteered to prepare lunch for the whole church. We recognize people like that we recognize people like Mickey Kim who oversees our Kingdom kids ministry Joyce Choi, our toddler ministry and all the teachers who right now even as I'm preaching are instilling Christ in the hearts of our children people like Sean Flores and John Choi, who open up and close our church first to arrive last to leave people like Uncle Chris who provide security and protection so that we can worship in peace. There are so many people that serve behind the scenes that we don't even recognize, that, we don't even, that we're not even aware of. But church, let's make sure. Let's make sure. Andy Kim, events. And how can we forget Stephen Song, our admin director, who does so much. That you carry stuff, and he does stuff that most of us aren't even aware of. Church, let's make sure people like that, can we not just pass them over? Can we stop and notice them and thank them and honor them for what they do, who they are, and all the ways they serve our body? Can we do that? Paul makes it clear that we are to have the same care for one another, regardless of our purpose, regardless of our function, regardless of what place we have in the body. And then he says in verse 26, if one member suffers, oh, oh, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Oh, what a beautiful, compelling picture of what the church is supposed to be. That if one of us is hurting, man, we're all hurting. That if one of us is celebrating a victory, we all rejoice in that victory together. As I reflected on this this week, It occurred to me that the one place where this is true is in a family would you agree with that when someone in your family is hurting doesn't everyone hurt every it affects everyone why because you love that person you love them you care for them conversely when someone in your family is over the moon about something man everyone's elated I'll give you an example. Jackson, my younger son, plays Little League Baseball. And not long ago, he and his team won the regional Le- Little League championship. Not just Pasadena, not just Monrovia, Arcadia, San the whole shebang. And let me tell you, we rejoice like crazy. And I'm, I'm not going to lie, I rejoice the most. I'm living vicariously through my son, right? Like, I'm the champion. <laughs> but we rejoice like crazy. See, that's what happens when your family. Is it any wonder that the Bible refers to the church as family and listen it doesn't say we're like a family it says we are family we are family when you place your faith in Christ you are adopted into the family of God and you become one of his children that means you and I we are no longer strangers We're not enemies. We're not rivals. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We really are family in a way that's even deeper than our physical families. We like to say that blood is thicker than water, don't we? And that's to convey that there's no one closer than our blood, our physical family. But for the Christian, if you're a Christian, a child of God, there is one clear exception to that rule, and that is the church. There is nothing closer, nothing deeper, nothing stronger than what makes the church the church, and that's Christ. So according to this book, the blood of Jesus is thicker than the blood of biology. The blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of biology. We really are family. And that is what we as a church aspire to be. And that's why one of our core values that we read every week that we read is church as family. That we as followers of Jesus pursue His vision of family through our deep and mutual commitment, interdependence, and affection. That through our deep and mutual commitment, interdependence, and affection, ah, that we would be family to each other, that we would live and operate as a family. And some of you, A good number of you have found out here you found family here at living way and for that I just I just thank God so much and I praise him for that I also know that there are those for whom the church has not felt like family and for some of us that's because you haven't really given yourself to the church when you think of church you think of this Church for you is primarily an event. It's an event that takes place on Sunday mornings. And as long as I come and participate in the event, then I'm good. I came and I sat through service, and when I'm done, I go home to my own family. If that describes you, I challenge and I exhort you today to rethink the nature and the primacy of the church. I encourage you today to give yourself to the church give yourself to the church as a matter of fact some of you listen some of you need to stop dating the church and get married some of you need to stop dating around looking for the perfect church because hear me there is no perfect church and if you were to find the perfect church it won't be perfect anymore once you join it So stop dating the church and commit. Man, put a ring on it. And it doesn't have to be here. That's not what I'm saying. You don't have to commit here, but you've got to commit somewhere. And if it is here, if this is the community that you believe God has led you to, one of the main ways that you can demonstrate your commitment to this local body is through something called membership. Membership. And membership is a formal way of entering into covenant with the other members of this body. Where you are committing yourself to play an active role in the life of this community. Where you're, you have a sense of ownership. Like, man, this is my church. This is my family. If something's not right, I'm going to fix it. If there's trash, I'm going to pick it up. If there's a need, I'm going to try to fulfill it. That's what membership does. That's what membership communicates. I want you to listen to this quote by Mark Dever on membership, okay? Listen carefully, please. He says, if you are not a member of the church you regularly attend, you may very well be going to hell. I don't mean for a second that you literally have to have your name on a membership card in a church somewhere to go to heaven. I believe in justification by faith alone and Christ alone by God's grace alone at the same time in the new testament it seems that the local church is there to verify or falsify our claims to be christians the man in first corinthians 5 who was sleeping with his father's wife thought of himself as a christian he goes on to say i don't care how much you cry during singing or preaching if you do not live a life marked by love toward others the bible has no encouragement for you to think that you're a christian none do you want to know that your life in Christ is real? Commit yourself to a local group of saved sinners and try to love them. And don't just do it for three weeks. Don't just do it for six months. Do it for years. And I think you'll find out, and others will too, whether or not you truly love God. The truth will show itself. Dever concludes by saying, joining a church won't save you. It's only the death of Christ that saves you. He alone is our righteousness. But if he really is our righteousness, if we really love him who we have not seen, it will show itself by us loving those that we do see. End quote. That's good, and he is right. We are told in 1 John four twenty: If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So I say it again. If living way is a place, the community, that you feel like God has led you to, I want to encourage you to commit. Put down your roots. Put down your roots. Jim Elliott said this, wherever you are, be all there. Wherever you are, be all there. And that's my encouragement to you. If this is where God has you, be all here. Be all in. Now some of you have done that. You've gone all in. You've committed yourself to this church. You've become a member and you serve and you give. But for whatever reason, man, it's been it's been hard. It's been a challenge for you to feel like this is family. And that's not for lack of trying, right? It's not, not for lack of seeking it out. No, you came here wanting to find family, wanting to m- make meaningful connections with like minded believers. But again, for whatever reason, it's been real hard finding that. And I'm guessing that some of you right now are in that place and you're feeling discouraged perhaps disillusioned and you feel like giving up and quitting the church if that's you here's what I want to say don't quit don't quit don't quit because see one of the things that actually makes the church feel like family is not leaving when things get hard I know that sounds counterintuitive because it is most people leave a church when it gets hard when the thrill is gone when it's not as exciting as it once was or when there's conflict or i've got issues with certain people at the church they leave thinking that i'm leaving all my problems behind only to find in their new church the very issues that they were having at the previous one now i'm not saying there's never a legitimate reason for leaving a church there are but what strikes me is that when you read the new testament paul never tells people to find another church when things get hard you won't, you won't find one verse in the Bible that says when things get up, when you encounter problems, go find a different church. Take, for example, this one, the church in Corinth. You think we got issues? You think we've got flaws? You think living ways is an imperfect church? Man, we got, we got nothing on these guys. Man, you name it, sexual immorality, jealousy, rivalry, immaturity, pride, arrogance, they had it all. And yet, not once does Paul tell the believers in this church, go find a better one. Or go find another one across town. No, he tells them to stick it out. He says, stick it out. You partner with God to make things right, to make things better right where you are. And that's my encouragement to you. Partner with God. Partner with others who want what you want and be the change you want to see. Be the culture. Be the culture you yearn to see, because I promise you, there are others in the church who want what you who are aching for what you're aching for, and when they see you modeling this, living out what it means to be family, even if nobody else around you is doing it, it's going to inspire them to jump on, and others as well. So be the culture. Be the change. Be the family you long to see. And there is no better place. To live that out than in our DCs in our small groups I'm so glad I'm so thankful that our DCs are back up and if you're not part of one I encourage you today to join one guys what if what if this fall what if this fall we all made a commitment to be part of a DC and we actually made a co- covenant with each other like if this is true Like if covenant is not just this way, but it's also this way. Oh, what if, for reals, what if we entered into a covenant with the people in our D.C.? Like in our D.C., no one stands alone. In our D.C., I don't know about the other ones. In our D.C., no one gets passed over. No one gets overlooked. No, in our D.C., everyone matters. Everyone's going to get cared for. Everyone's going to be loved on. Oh, what if we made that kind of a commitment? What if we entered into that kind of a covenant? Oh, that would be amazing. That would be transformative. And that would be God-honoring. Speaking of God, we Christians often pray, God, let my heart be broken for the things that break yours right have you heard that God let my heart break for the things that break yours and that's a good thing we ought to be praying that but shouldn't we also be praying for the other side God let my heart love what your heart loves oh Jesus let me love the very things you love and we as followers of Christ We've got to love what Christ loves, and if there's anything Jesus loves, it's his bride, the church. And if Jesus is passionate about the church, then indifference is not an option. I'm going to say that again. If our Lord and Savior and treasure is passionate about his church, indifference is not an option. So let's pray that we would love it to that we too will be passionate about his church. Yes, God, and that is our prayer. God, let us love. Let our hearts love what you love. And Jesus, you love your church, your bride. You love her like crazy. God, will you give us your heart? God, meet each one of us where we are. God, meet us where we are. Some of us love your church. Some of us are on the fence. We're not sure yet. And there are some of us, God, who are just checked out. Who have not taken it seriously. God, would you and your grace meet each one of us where we are. Thank you, God, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God, that there's grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, love upon love. And I pray, God, that your kindness would lead us to repentance that your kindness, your gentleness, your love, your compassion, God, that it would turn our hearts so that we would love your bride, so that we would love your church as you love it. And I pray that for every heart, every heart here, and every heart within the sound of my voice. God, I pray that you would give us a heart for your church, knowing, Jesus, that you loved us to death. You gave, gave your very life. Not only so that we can be one with you, but so that we can be one with each other. So, God, make us one. Oh, God, this is, this is, this has to be a supernatural work. God, would you make living way one? That every part of this body, every member, God that we would come together and that we would see each other truly as family, that we would see our need of each other, God that we would made, we were made for each other, God help us to see it. God would, that, would you cause that to land in our hearts? God would you do it? And God for the sake of our joy. God for the sake of this community, for the sake of our city and for the sake of the nations. In Jesus' name.